0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's 2009. It's Super Bowl 43. Anybody remember who played that year? It was the Steelers and the Cardinals. Anybody remember one that year? Who cares? In the famous words of one famous linebacker from the Dallas Cowboys back in the 1970s when they asked him, what does it feel like to play the most ultimate game of the, in the world? And he goes, if it was so ultimate, why are they going to play it again next year? <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? But if you saw that Super Bowl, which you don't remember, it's very possible that you saw this commercial.
1: grandfather, he's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats, don't let anybody tell you it's easy.
0: Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild shorthairs, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done.
1: I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face, it's just ripped to shreds, you know. You see the movies, you hear the stories, it's, I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. (laughs) I
0: wouldn't do nothing else. I remember that one, and the reason it works today is because um, we've been listening to the gospel of Mark for several weeks now, and each week we are asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It is perhaps the most misunderstood or marginalized command that he ever spoke, and we have to get it if we're going to get him. And at risk of sacrilege, I would like to suggest to you that what you saw in that clip as silly, as And as funny as it is, is still a glimpse, is a taste of what it means to follow him. Sometimes you're the cat, sometimes you're the herder. But in every situation, what we're hearing is what it means to follow him is is captured just a little bit in that silly little moment. And how I know that is in the passage we're going to look at today, man, it is an outlier in the entire Gospel of Mark. And, and, and I mean that in this sense. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and it goes rapid-fire, fast-paced, quick-paced. The word that you find most often mentioned in the several, first several chapters of the book is the Greek word euthous, which means immediately. Immediately they follow him. Immediately he healed them. Immediately they went on their way. It's like boom, boom, boom. But there is one passage in the entirety of the whole Gospel of Mark that goes at a very slow, elongated pace. Sometimes in film, a filmmaker will stick on a shot for a very long time. Why? In order for you to see something that you might otherwise miss. Mark wants us to see something really profound by telling us a story that goes at the most leisurely pace in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. And it has everything to do with what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're going to listen to that passage. And we're going to consider its, its, its patience. We're going to consider its, its peculiarities. And I think what we're going to learn is three things about what it means to follow Jesus. One, his charge, which is just a funny way of saying the way he walks. His charge and our charge. But then finally the strength to follow him and fulfill that charge in him. His charge, our charge and where we find the strength to fulfill his charge in us. So, I wonder, stretch your legs, we're going to stand one more time. We're in chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Would you stand and hear the text read?
1: The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while." For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and began to teach them many things. And when it grew late his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of food, worth of bread, and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they, found, when they had found out, they said, Five This is the word of the Lord.
0: So this whole moment begins with these disciples, the ones who have elected to follow Jesus. They're in need of rest. They have been working hard, doing what he's told them to do, uh, doing and teaching as it says, and yet they've been Uh, at it in such a way that they're skipping meals uh, they're whooped they're wiped and so you see him say in verse 31 come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while all right here's where we pause and we ask ourselves the question what's up with that word desolate because if you were listening closely you notice that that word is uttered three times he says come away to a desolate place They get on the boat to traverse to the desolate place. Later, while they're there, the disciples say, my, this is a desolate place. And the question is, okay, what? Mark, are you running out of words here? Why do you keep repeating yourself? What's with the repetition? When you see words in a text that are repeated over and over again, you shouldn't just sort of go, I guess he was just bored and needed a word he could reach for. There's something there. There's a purpose In choosing that word. And that purpose stretches as far back as what you heard in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is baptized, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. His father says, beloved, blessed is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then what does it say? The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's the same word, eramos. Sent into the desolate place. Okay, Mark. Show your hand, man. What's going on here? Why use that word regularly there's a word that's in yours in my vocabulary that's kind of taken on a new meaning I don't know when and it's the word callback callback is not I call you back callback not in the sense of oh I got a callback on my audition not that callback is the idea of a present reference asking you to remember something that's happening in the past and to connect the dots between them so let me give you a couple of examples from the cinematography world First of all, any of you ever see Stranger Things? Any part of it? Some of you did. There's a moment late in the second season where they are dancing, and they are dancing to a song by Cyndi Lauper, time after time, right? Guess what? That's a callback. You know what it's to? It's a callback to Napoleon Dynamite. I've lost half of you already. (laughs) God, why? Right? Sure. Right. What are they dancing to in that scene? Time After Time by Cindy Lopper. there is a deliberate connection to the later filmmaker pulling back from the original filmmaker. All right, let me give you another one. Whoever saw Big Hero 6? Pixar, right? Right. There's Big Hero. There's Hero, right? In the, in the final climactic scene in which you see everything sacrificial about that. You know what that's a callback to? Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, in the Motara Nebula from my childhood. Look at the color scheme. Even the color scheme. It's a callback. The dudes at Pixar are saying, oh, let's remember what happened in the Wrath of Khan. That's a callback. We watch, it's our tradition, it's our ritual in our family. We watch Elf around Thanksgiving. Here's a test of your callback knowledge. When Buddy the Elf, looking very forlorn, shows up on a bridge on Christmas Eve with the snow and he's looking over the lake, what is that a callback to? It's a wonderful life. It's a callback. It is a deliberate attempt To remind you of an earlier moment and to somehow deepen the significance of the moment that you're now facing. Guess what Mark is doing in this passage? Callbacks galore. And the first one is with this repeated reference to the word desolate. How is that a callback? It's a callback to Moses. Where does Moses lead and feed a wandering Israel after they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt in the wilderness? In a desolate place. And Jesus is the one who has led them into a desolate place. He's met the crowd in a desolate place. And he's come to feed them in a desolate place. Mark is there by using that word as a callback to Moses to say this Jesus is like Moses, and yet he is greater than Moses. This is the first callback. Jesus says, All right, everybody, disciples in a boat. Let's go. Let's go to a desolate place. And what happens? They think they're going to be able to get away and relax. Guess what? Word travels fast. Everybody gets on their smartphones and say, he's going to the other side of the lake. Flash mob shows up there. If you're a doctor, if you're in law enforcement, if you're a fireman, if you're a parent, there's moments where you think, oh, finally, a break in the action. And then, boom, all other wave of need comes your way. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't chafe. He doesn't curse the night. He doesn't conceal himself, pull his cloak over his head and go, Jesus, Jesus, never heard of him. Who? In that moment, he looks upon the crowd, and there in verse 34 it says he had compassion. He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, that's a funny thing to say all of a sudden. Why have we suddenly brought up shepherds here? Because that's another callback. That's a call back to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, if you have your Bibles, you should turn there. You could turn there if you want. Ezekiel 34. What happens in Ezekiel 34? It's the Lord, through the prophet, lamenting that Israel's prophets, who should have been feeding and seeking out the lost and binding up the herding and discerning between sheep and sheep, they have instead fattened themselves and abandoned their charge. And he's saying, I am going to have to step in and be a shepherd for them because these shepherds I have appointed have failed at their task. They've become shopkeepers. They've fattened themselves up and they've abandoned their role. Mark, through mentioning that line in Ezekiel chapter 34, is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that longing that Israel had been waiting for and had come up short on so often, both then and now. He is the fulfillment of that. He is a callback to Ezekiel. You even hear Ezekiel say there in 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, which is a really funny way of putting it because David has been in the ground moldering for centuries by this point. What are you talking about, Ezekiel? That somebody like David is coming. And you know what? Mark knew what Ezekiel said, but Mark also knew what David prayed. What am I getting at? you read any gospel account, um, you usually expect just to find the facts. You know, this happened, this happened, they said this, they said this, it was around here, this time of year. But when you start mentioning details, you go, okay, what's up with that? There's a point in which um, Jesus has everybody sit down in companies of 50 or 100, which is its own call back to Moses from the 12 tribes. But there's a moment in which it says, and he had them sit down on the green grass. Well, that's a uh, a funny detail to mention. I can imagine the hey, hey, sit down, or at least the hey, um, sit down on the grass. You don't want to get your you know bathrobe dirty in the dirt, but sit down on the green grass. What? It, what a curious thing to mention. No, it's not. Not if Mark is doing callbacks. Who else said? He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He makes me lie down in green pastures no 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 it's not just a detail left for you know cinematic effect it's a callback but in the way david or the psalmist thinks upon his lord as the one who is his shepherd jesus is that one you've been waiting for he's a callback to moses he's both like Moses and greater than Moses. He's a callback to Ezekiel, a fulfillment of the way Israel's shepherds had not been Israel's shepherds. And he is a callback to David who believes the Lord is his shepherd. This is who Jesus is. This is his charge. To be one who is like a shepherd. And he has come to attend to them He has come to lead them besides the waters, to lead them into green pastures, to restore their soul, to help them find a place of rest, to help them find pasture, so to speak, to help them find home, to get them home. This is his charge, to attend both to their spiritual condition and also their material need. He does both. He teaches them. He feeds them. This is a shepherd of a holistic nature. That's his charge. And I know you may go, that's interesting. So what? Is that like a one off that we're just supposed to be impressed with him? No. If that is his charge, and he has called those who would know him to follow him, then that, friends, is our charge as well to anyone who would follow him. That's his charge. That's our charge. So let's talk about our charge in more detail. Jesus is known as the Savior, but if you will, Jesus is also a template for our humanity. What is human? What does it mean to be a human? You look at Jesus, you look at shepherd, the shepherd, the one who was walking in his charge given to him. That's what it means to follow him. And that's, that should be obvious to all of us from what you heard in the very first verse of the passage. What are the disciples doing? What makes them tired that obligates Jesus to say, let's go get some rest. They were out doing what? Doing and teaching as he had taught them. They're walking in his way. And it's not just something that disciples of the first moment, the first crop of disciples would do. It's, it's not a one-off. It's, it's the paradigm for anybody that would follow him. How do I know that? You already know that. Let's just remind ourselves. What... When it comes to what James says, in in James chapter 2, he says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. What kind of faith? would have no interest in so far as you are able to meet that need. What faith would have no interest in the material need of a brother? In this passage, Jesus does not say, you know what, I did the sermon later. Get. I am not going to be, you know, belabored by that issue. I, his compassion is not reserved or confined to their their need of spiritual insight or hope. So to draw out the very practical implication from that reality, why do we have a diaconate in this church? Why do we have deacons and deaconesses that are entrusted with the responsibility to be the tip of the spear in helping us to attend to the physical and financial and material conditions of our people and of giving oversight to the material conditions of those with whom we have partnership and ministry throughout this area? Why do we do that? Why do we rally you to participate in the work we do for you know, Black Mountain Children's Home and Honduras Fountain of Life and Kairos and Knickers for New Life and, and Storehouse and Least of These? Why do we do that? Why is it a thing we, we rib you about on a regular basis? Because that's part of Jesus' charge and we would be nuts to exclude it. But, but flip it around. Jesus fed them. He was interested in their material condition, but... But let's talk about that inner spiritual need again. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13 about the nature of faith? He says this, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. That's a bizarre thought that somebody could have a faith that was so noble and so sacrificial but that it was more like a cause that they you know, were so proud to be a part of, but it lacked entirely in compassion. Apparently that's possible. And apparently that's insidious. And apparently it's entirely contradictory to what it means to walk by faith. What kind of faith does not need to be deeply persuaded in our innermost person of the deep spiritual truth of a love that will never let you go? Yes, he fed. Yes, he taught. So again, let's draw out the practical implications of that truth. Why do we have groups here? Why do we have classes that we offer on a regular basis? Why do we invite you to become part of groups that already exist or to form new groups that might create these sort of formative friendships in which you might be able to get past the pleasantries and start talking about the deep realities of your own existence, the deep struggles to know what it means to be faithful in your world? Why do we do that? Why do we gather here on a Sunday morning? Why couldn't you just be in your bathrobe sipping a latte right now? Because this is what is part of Jesus' charge, and we would be nuts to exclude it from our own. They go hand in hand. He has a concern for that. He's he's dedicated to to the formation of the spiritual condition of the person. That's why we do what we do around here, that is our charge. And that is why anybody that would walk in his way is invited into that charge as well. His interest to teach and to feed was to show forth what it means for the kingdom of God to spread, for the influence of God's work to move deeply into the hearts of people such that all things become new And he begins with hearts that are made new. And if you aren't clear that that is his charge, there is one real, maybe subtle thing that you missed. Jesus is out to do something in those who follow him to do as he does, to bring forward into others to do what he does. And this might be a very bizarre illustration, but have any of you seen either of the Quiet Place movies? Um, It is not for the squeamish. Um, here's my wife through half of each film. When is it over? When is it over? Is, are they okay? Right, it's, it's sci-fi, it's horror, but I will dare say, friends, uh, maybe it's not for everybody, but you will see the gospel in the first one. And last night when we saw the second one, you will see this passage in it. Why do I say that? Um, I'm probably not the only person that ever saw The End of Quiet Place 2, and I'm probably not the only parent who was almost brought to tears in the very last scene of the film because what happens is, without ruining anything, those who come after you acting as you would in your absence. How do you know when your work is done? When those who come after you act as you would in your absence. That's what that film is about. And that's what Jesus is about here. He's about modeling something for them that they would do as he has done in his absence. That's what it means to be a disciple. Disciples make disciples. That's how it goes forward. And as soon as I say that, some of you are like, yes, let's take that hill. And others of you are like, oh my gosh, I feel this, like the bottom just dropped out when you said that. And I get it. I feel both of those at times. And that's why there's a really important caveat that Jesus is out to say to us in this passage about what it means to fulfill our charge in him. And it comes down to what you hear in verse 35 from the disciples. I'm so glad the disciples are mentioned at length in here because they is us. Because in verse 35, they look around and they say, "Um, it's late. There ain't no daylight savings time and there is no food trucks here and no taco joints in earshot. So they're hungry. We should probably say, go home, let them go find food. And that makes total sense. And Jesus says, sorry, you give them something to eat. Usually in Greek, they'll put the verb at the end of a sentence. In this one, Jesus front loads it. You give them something to eat. This is on you. And, and so they look at him like he's got two heads. Uh, sorry, are we made of money? Do you know how much it would cost to feed everybody here? Or do you want us to go knock over a camel filling station? And I knew Brad would laugh at that one. I did that one for Brad. And no one else, clearly. They think, what are we supposed to do? And you know what? Jesus knows they got nothing. Because he says, Let's do an inventory of what is available. Show me what you got. Let's see. Five loaves of bread. One, two, three, four, five, and two fish. One, two, five plus two is seven. And Jesus says, don't count me out. Jesus is here to tell them and to tell us that your charge, the one that he gives to us, Is beyond you it isn't within your skill set your aptitude your background your experiences your wherewithal your resources to fulfill what he is asking you to do it's not with you and oh my gosh do we hate hearing that you're brilliant people but in a structuralized, medicalized, systematized world, it isn't in you to do what he's asking you to do. You can't. F.D. Bruner is my favorite commentator. And on this passage, he said this, Disciples should always count to eight. One, two, three, four, five loaves. One, two fish. Five plus two is seven. And Jesus is like... Don't count me out. Um, I get it. My abacus usually stops at seven. But the way I count, the way you count, reveals the way you think. And if the way you count is a basis of what you see, then you will conclude that that which is visible and actionable and measurable is the extent to which God may fulfill his charge for you. And Jesus is saying, no! No! And for we as American Christians, man, we love to predict, and we should to prognosticate, absolutely, to plan ahead. Why not? to prepare as best we can. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, it is unavoidable that you and I have to be thrown back on prayer. All of those other things are cool. But you can't take that alone. You can't turn Jesus into a set piece. You can't make him into a wall hanging. He prefers to be involved in your workplace, on your street, as you parent, whatever the case may be, he likes being involved. In fact, he will need to be involved in order to fulfill your charge in whatever application that might be. And that's why to finish F.D. Brunner's thought, it's this. Disciples should always count to eight. Christian faith is nothing if it's not a supernaturalism. If it can count only to seven, if it does not believe that Jesus is risen and can do things. I don't want to believe it either. I I really just kind of prefer to think, "Ah, we got it, okay, thanks. And he says, good luck with that. It means the way to follow him is to venture things that you know are impossible, to ask for things that you know are impossible, and to hope that things might actually be possible, which otherwise will feel impossible. That's following. It's beyond you, and that's a good thing because it teaches you and I to depend as we should. And that sounds noble, wonderful even. But there comes a point in which, if that's our charge, to attend with compassion to those he puts in our way for their spiritual and physical condition, often at cost and at risk to us getting scratched by the cat If you have to, if that's it, there comes a point in which it feels very unnatural. Because if we're honest with ourselves, the idea of thinking more of others than ourselves, after a while, it's like, ah, that's a stretch. And once again, I'm glad that the disciples are described at length in the Gospels, because there's plenty of moments when you can clearly see evidence that they are really in this for themselves, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your cabinet? Oh dear, have you learned nothing? Right? That's us. We tell ourselves that we're noble. How much is this for us? It feels unnatural. And the part about counting to eight? No, 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 no. I would really rather predict and plan. I have a, sp- Jesus, I have a spreadsheet. Oh, really? And prayer, I really don't have time. I I don't have time for this. I re- it all feels unnatural. So what will ever help it feel natural to live out this charge in this way? What will give us the strength to fulfill the charge as he intends? Here's where I land the plane. In this passage, you see Jesus as a shepherd through the callbacks to Moses to Ezekiel, to David. And you see that shepherding intent and and wonder-working power in the miraculous way. He multiplies the bread so that everybody's happy, fat and happy when they leave. And you know what? Nobody knew that a miracle happened except the disciples. He's doing it for them. But friends, that, in the way he shows himself a shepherd in that moment, is just a foretaste for what's coming. Because what's coming is Jesus showing himself not to be just a shepherd that's greater than Moses, but the greatest shepherd that you might know. By the way, he lays down his life for the sheep. He's not like a hired hand. He becomes one of us to die for us. He doesn't flee, he stays at his post, he finishes his work. And somehow, with the help of his Holy Spirit, We look at him and we see beauty in that and we see glory in that, and somehow, somehow, that helps us think about doing everything for ourselves. That leaves us with a bad taste in our mouth, finally. When we begin to feed on him, where the bread that he multiplies is for the sake of the whole world, and it's not actual bread, but it's his own body. Somehow, with the help of the Spirit, we start to believe that this charge, though beyond us, is still for us, and with His strength is possible in us and through us. Because, friends, He wouldn't do nothing else. That's why we're coming to this table. He came here to walk in our shoes to meet us in our addictions to our own self, to heal us of those longings that go in so many stunted directions, and then dies to prove a love that will not let us go. That's the gospel. And that's what gives us the strength to fulfill us this charge. This is why we've come here. This is why we need him. This is why we need him to walk our streets and point us on the path toward home. Let's pray. I'm glad that you've told us that we can't do this. But I'm glad that you've told us to walk in your way so that we might reach for you and ask you to be our shepherd and not be timid enough to ask you to be our shepherd in this moment. If only that we then might walk as you have in ways that no one will see, but you will see them. In ways that seem entirely inconsequential to us, but are not inconsequential to you. In ways that demonstrate a simple act of humble love for another through offering them what we know of you and offering them what they need in this world and that somehow we might see in you a glory that is worth this. Oh, come, thou long-expected Jesus, And help us to adore you as you are worthy of such. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Find somebody you don't know and maybe share a few of your first words as you leave here today. Welcome to Advent. Don't forget to download your devotional guide for the rest of our time together, written by members of this family. We welcome you to it. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you all. And also with you. Go in peace.